Our scripture this morning is 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets had gone, have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and that the, the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus told a parable during his ministry about uh, the wheat and the tares, where there was sowing of good seed and sowing of weeds among the good seed right alongside it. It happened during the night while they were asleep. And in this parable, there's certainly more to it than this, but at least we see that Jesus tips us off into one of the strategies of the enemy. And one of the strategies of the enemy isn't to just blatantly stop good sowing of good seed. Certainly, the enemy wants to hinder that. But one of the strategies of the enemy isn't to stop the good sowing, but to sow bad seed, weeds, in among the good seed so that they might grow up. It's been this way since the Garden of Eden, right? We have truth from God, commands from God, and what does the enemy do? Slithers in and he sows some bad seed. Are, are you sure that this is a good command from a loving God? And so the bad seed is, is planted along with the good. It's been so since the garden. It's so for John's readers. He has already told them that you know that the many antichrists have already gone out. They, they are teaching a a doctrine of Jesus that is different than the one that you received from me. They are sowing seed, bad seed, wrong seed among the good. And is that any less true for us today? In times where John has already told them, you know it's the last hour, and certainly if it was the last hour then, then we could say like, okay, we've, we've gone further. It's certainly the, the last hour now for us as well. In times where it's the last hour, where, where many antichrists have gone out into the world, here's what is needed, more discernment, not less. More strength, more wisdom, more discernment, more, not less. And because there's this need for discernment from God's people that they might be able to, to discern what's going on between the good seed and the bad seed and which is which, where should I learn from what teaching is right and accurate because that's needed, John comes along with his readers and he gives them some help for discernment. He, he gives them a test. He, he calls God's children to, to test. Test the spirits, he's going to say. 
In times when many antichrists, and he's going to say today, false prophets are alive and active and at large, God's people need discernment. They need assurance in the midst of all the the bad seed that's being sown, and that's what John seeks to give us this morning. So John, again, addresses his readers, his beloved. It's a reflection of the heart of God that he would reach out to them as beloved. He's writing to those who, we saw this last week in chapter 3, verse 24, he's writing to those who are abiding in God, and they abide in God because he abides in them. These are those who have the Holy Spirit abiding in them. This is his audience. And in this text, John shows the the love of God, the heart of God, with his concern for the church. And God loves his bride. He loves his people. He loves his church. And and because he loves them, he wants them to be protected. He wants them to be cared well for. And John expresses this care and this form of protection by giving a command. Now, you probably have heard in, in churches many times, there's all sorts of commands to believe. And there's a few things to not believe. And here, John gives a command of something not to believe. Don't believe something, and here it is in verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, again, there are things to believe, and there are things to not believe. You've heard like, hey, don't tell me what you're against, tell me what you're for. We're like, well, yeah, but we also need to tell you what we're against too. We need both of those. So what do we believe? What do we not believe? What do we affirm? What do we deny? Those need to go hand in hand. And, and what do we need to move toward? What do we need to avoid? Good shepherds, they, they will give you both because they care for the sheep. And, and God, he gives both for the protection and for the care of his church. He says, here are some things to believe, trust in, move toward. Here are some things to not believe, to move away from, to avoid. They're dangerous. And that's what John is doing. He's pointing out the danger because not everything is good. Not all teaching out there is good. Not all those who claim to be inspired by the Spirit are actually inspired by the Spirit. Some diets are very toxic and can harm the sheep. There's this doctor, he's a forage specialist at Ohio State University, that said that sheep, they face danger from many of the, the, the forage species that they normally would eat of after frost. So when it frosts, then, then those things that they could normally eat and be okay with, after that frost, they become toxic and can harm the sheep. So he says, all right, here's all the, this is a pretty big list of things like, don't let the sheep just go wild on these things after a frost because it could hurt them. And there's been a frost with John's readers, hasn't there? Many have already left, he said. They have gone out and they've started claiming something different. They set up, in a, in a sense, a, another congregation, another church. There's a frost and, and and some of the stuff that, that was a place of source of life and, and a good diet possibly has now turned toxic. Toxic to genuine faith, toxic to genuine fellowship, a fellowship with the Father and with His Son. And so John warns those who've remained, be careful because there's, there's toxic stuff out there. Don't believe every spirit. Don't believe everyone that says that they're inspired by the Spirit, that they have special knowledge, that they have some sort of special utterance from God. They might claim to be inspired, but John says, so what? Test them and find out. Because there are many false prophets that have gone out into the world. Many claim to be speaking inspired words from God. I made a mistake a few weeks ago. I turned on TBN. (laughs) And I don't watch this often, so this is, I, I, there might be awesome stuff on there. I don't know. But the, the small snippet that I watched was way worse than I had imagined. 
I mean, we, th- this, this problem is out there. Many have gone out and, and, and are claiming to be inspired by the Spirit, by God. Paul faced the same in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 12, 3. He says, watch out. Not everyone speaking of the Spirit of God is from the Spirit of God. He said the same similar warning in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 20 and 21. And there are some that are prophesying. He's not mad about that. He says, test everything. Because the implication is not everyone that's saying that they're offering a prophecy from God and prophesying in the name of God is actually doing something that's for your good. And this is not an isolated phenomenon. It's a pervasive problem that's been around again since the garden, and and when the church comes, when the Spirit is given, then it's just a a new kind of counterfeit that's being used by the enemy to sow bad seeds along with the good. And with the real danger of deception from one of these many false prophets that have gone out, John has to say, there's some things to not believe you need to test. Not everyone claiming to speak inspired words is. Not all claiming to prophesy are actually prophesying. And he says, test these things. And and what he doesn't do is beautiful. John doesn't come to them and and give them names. He says, you know what? I'm familiar with you guys. You're my beloved children. I also know these 10 guys, Alpheus and whatever, they, they are just vile now. Don't listen. He doesn't do that. He gives a more timeless truth in that. He doesn't stir up their fear and say, watch out. You know, these guys are really going to... No, he doesn't say. He says, test. He doesn't rant. He doesn't write a blog post to say, like, you need to make sure here's your 10 people to identify. He equips with something more timeless. He gives actual help by saying, test, examine, discern. You don't have to turn on TBN to know this is real for us today. It's all around us. It was in Corinth. It was in Thessalonica. It's with John's audience. It's with us, too. So test is a command for us. Believers are to to test everything, to take everything and examine it, to discern, to see if it's from God or not. In other words, believers aren't to be passive receivers of everything that comes their way. They are to be those who are actively examining. We're not to just receive every spiritual lesson, prophetic word, inspired teaching. We're to test because John says there's many false prophets that have gone out into the world. And guess what? They're persuasive. They're compelling. They're probably more talented than a lot of the true teachers at times. And so John says you need to test. That's part of the problem, isn't it? That that they're not monsters. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, beware wolves in sheep's clothing. Get what he's getting at there, right? They don't look like wolves. They look like sheep. They're soft and cuddly. You want to draw them near, and they'll gut you. Peter says that, 2 Peter 2, some false teachers, false prophets, they, they've, they've kind of crept in and secretly, you're unaware. In other words, John has a good reason to say, test, because it, it's not just obvious. Martin Lloyd-Jones said that the false prophet is a man who comes to us and who at first has the appearance of being everything that could be desired. Think about that for a second. He's nice and pleasing and pleasant, and he appears to be thoroughly Christian teacher. And what we wish would happen is we wish like, okay, all false prophets and wolves, go ahead and self-identify. Just tell us 
what's going on, that you're not from God. But since that's not going to happen, John gives us a timeless truth, like test. Testing is, is what's needed. So if we're to test and discern the spirits, then, then how are we to do that? How do we identify false prophets? What's the test? And John moves from the command for his beloved to test all the spirits to the test itself. Now, when we think about spirit, I, I, I think what John means by testing the spirit is that this is a person that, who, who claims to be inspired by the spirit. That is, you know, he, he's understanding this. They're driven by something and they have a spirit within them and they're, they're claiming some sort of inspiration and so when he says, test the spirits, it's, it's a person he's talking about. And here's what he says is the test. Verse 2, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. We want to notice that this test that he gives to them is a doctrinal test. It's a, it's a test of belief. If you hear that doctrine doesn't matter then you need to be really wary of that source. Doctrine doesn't matter is itself a doctrine. It's almost a self-defeating like this. To hear that, then watch out because doctrine absolutely matters. Explicit confessions with specific content matters. You're not saved by any name under heaven. There's only one name. So your confession and the content of that confession absolutely matters. It's critical. Now, we would wholeheartedly agree with saying that some doctrines are debatable. Not every hill is a hill to die on, but there are some hills to die on. There are some that aren't a matter for debate. There are some that will clarify if one is from God or if one is not from God, and John gives us one of those, and it's centered on the person and work of Jesus. Here's the doctrine, that Jesus has come in the flesh. I actually think that this is likely a little bit of shorthand for John to oppose many of the false things that were being claimed by those who had already left the, the people he's writing to. So it, it's perhaps a little bit of a shorthand that includes a lot more for them than maybe we would see as evident and clearly evident for us. But here's at least what's included. There are many, again, in that statement, many affirmations and denials. There are both. And we are okay with both. There are things to believe and there are things to not believe if we're going to be faithful to the scripture. And so there are affirmations and denial all wrapped up here. And so in this shorthand, he says that Jesus has come. Think about just that, has come. From where? Where did he come from? There's, there's this implication that, that Jesus existed before he came, that there's this pre-existent one. You can almost hear John 1 in, in your mind rattling around. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was pre-existent. When did Jesus, when was he created? Like, he was always there. No one created him. He was in the beginning with God and he was God. He's the preeminent one. He's the one who was from the beginning. And he has come, has all of that wrapped in it. And he has come in the flesh. He, chapter 1, verse 14 of the Gospel of John. And the Word became flesh. That eternal God that we call Jesus, God the Son, he took on flesh and he dwelt among us. This is Jesus, is, is affirming that Jesus is God incarnate. Colossians 1 verse 15, 
It says that he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Chapter 1, verse 19 of Colossians says that in him, in Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He wasn't just a part of God. He was fully God, fully displaying who God is to the world. He is the, in him was the fullness of God. Jesus is God. So when we say that he has come in the flesh, there's a lot we're affirming there. That's a big doctrine. That's a hill to die on. And this matters especially because it actually happened. We're actually fighting for truth here. These are facts that Jesus had come, has come in the flesh. The, the gospel is news. It's, it's more than just news, but it is news. And for news to be good, it has to be true. Or it's not good, and it's not helpful. Remember what John said in chapter 2, verse 22? Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? The, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that has to be true for it to be good. It has to be true because in the flesh, Jesus becomes the propitiation for our sins. If he didn't come in the flesh, he's not the propitiation for our sins. And God's wrath has not been turned aside from any sinner. If Jesus hasn't come in the flesh, then he hasn't raised to be the advocate before the Father for all those who have been trusted in him. And so in other words, when Jesus says, or when John says that Jesus has come in the flesh, This is no ivory tower debate for the scholars. This is a hill to die on for the saints. This is absolutely essential to us that all of our salvation even depends upon this confession's truth. The explicit confession that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh matters. And it shows if one is from God or not. And here's what John says, not every spirit confesses this. Not everyone who claims to be from God, giving inspired speech from God, offering prophecies from God that would be profitable for the people of God, not everyone that says that is affirming this. Verse 3, and every spirit that does not confess that Jesus, does not confess Jesus is not from God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is in the world already. It's already out there. There's an article in the original here that's, that's not in our English translations, which is okay. It's not a bad translation, but it's an article that we call an article of previous reference. And so when he says Jesus here, he's actually wrapping in all that he's just said about Jesus. So he's saying, verse 3, and every spirit that does not confess that Jesus, we go back to verse 2, what kind of Jesus? The Jesus that has come in the flesh. That one. So he's affirming the same kind of things. And everyone that does not confess Jesus as described above is not from God, but that's the spirit of the Antichrist. And the implication is that spirit, that person that is claiming those things, is not to be believed. If one claims some sort of inspiration from God, but is a little bit fuzzy on the person and work of Jesus, you need to be careful. And perhaps they are the very spirit of the Antichrist. If they claim to be those who love God and are for his purposes and his mission on the earth, but they're not sure about Jesus' life and death and resurrection, don't believe them. They, they fail to pass the test that John gives. Those from God, truly from God, are clear on the person work of God in the flesh, and they pass the test. I think that the first way to use this test It's not out there, but in here. It's on ourselves. Do we believe that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh? Do we explicitly confess this is true of our own lives? 
Could we say along with our, our brother Thomas, my Lord and my God? I love how personal that is for Thomas. It wasn't any longer what the other apostles had been saying about Jesus, that he was raised and that he's our Lord and God. And we're following him to the ends of the earth. Now Thomas is like, I've seen him. He knows him. He says, my Lord and my God. He makes it his own at that point. Could we say along with Paul? Paul says that Jesus died for the church. He died for his bride. But he also could say, Galatians 2, 20, the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who what? Who loved me and gave himself for me. Like he, he knows this is true for himself. He has faith in the person and work of Jesus. Like he explicitly confesses it and he has no issue with it whatsoever. He loved me, he gave himself for me. He knows that Jesus has come in the flesh. He's affirming those kind of things. Do you pass that test? Maybe one way to help in testing ourselves is to think where we'd be if all this stuff about Jesus weren't true? Where would we be if it was all proven false? And here's the reality is that Christians are those who bet it all on Jesus. There's no backup plan for us. There's no, we've, we've at least, you know, we've, we've spread out the risk like a mutual fund so that if one drops, then we have a few others that are kind of going to hold us up. No, like we've put it all in this one, and if it fails, we're all doomed. If we're off on him, then we're most to be pitied. It's not, well, shucks, you know, like at least I got a moral life and I lived a good way. No, that's foolish. It was like, well, at least it was worth living for something bigger than myself, even if it wasn't true. No, if, if Jesus, and if we're wrong on Jesus and who he is and what he has done, then that's a complete gutting of our lives. That's a Christian and a complete tragedy for us. So again, is that Jesus to you? We sing the song, all I have is Christ, Jesus is my life. And in a real sense, that's, that's what we confess as Christians. Is that true for you? Do you pass that test? Do you believe that Jesus has come in the flesh that this is the Christ from God. And if you are, then you can then apply the test outside of that, right? Apply this test to every spirit. Don't, again, passively receive everyone who claims to be from God and speaking for God on behalf of God, spirit-inspired words. Don't passively receive, test every spirit. I don't know where this tradition started. It's been uh, several hundred years ago now in Scottish churches, but Scottish churchmen, they would place inside the, the pulpits. You just think, I don't know if you've seen an old-fashioned pulpit, but like they, a lot of them would have staircases, and they'd wind around. They'd have this big, so that they didn't have microphones, so they could help get the sound out. And, and inside those pulpits, they placed this, this brass plate that said, Sir, we would see Jesus. And they're picking up on words that from John chapter 12 where the Greeks came to a few of the apostles and said, Sirs, like, we want to see Jesus. And they're picking up on that because that's what they want from that man that would teach them and say, we want to see Jesus. We must see Jesus. Right? And that's what we need to require. Right? Sir, whoever the Spirit is, whatever they're, we would see Jesus. And if it doesn't meet that test, then John says we're not to believe you. So is the confession of Jesus explicit? In those you're listening to, in those you're letting, allowing to have spiritual authority to teach, is it accurate? Not just are they, they claiming that Jesus has come in the flesh, or that, does it match up with the actual coming of Jesus? Or think of it this way, is Jesus' coming in the flesh necessary for this teaching to hold? 
each week, whatever we preach, whether it's me or someone else, whatever we preach and teach from here, Jesus' coming had better be necessary for it to hold. Amen. We absolutely don't want to preach sermons that would be completely acceptable in synagogues. We don't want you to be okay with that either. You need to be saying, sir, we'd see Jesus. Now, no doubt, even if we do that, if we have an explicit confession, like people can, can think that we're cultish or whatever. That's come up several times. People don't like our covenant for some reason. That seems weird. But we don't have to defend that because God gave you guys the test, right? If Jesus is our message and Jesus is our goal and Jesus is what we're after and Jesus is what we're holding up and Jesus is what we're saying, be like him, follow after him, then, then we don't need to step up and say, hey, we're actually not a cult. We can let Jesus defend his people, his church, his teaching. He'll, he'll do just fine. He's not had a problem. He can defend. He can vindicate. He can testify to his children by his spirit that what is being said is either true and from God or not true and not from God. There is so much around us, is there not, teaching claims from, to be from God, the Spirit of God, so much that would even actually confess Jesus, but then the teaching would so quickly stray. It's like, okay, we're okay with Jesus. Yes, he's come, but here's 10 rules that you have to live. And here's the good life. You've got to be good enough or you don't fit in things to obey in order to be saved, we could say. And we say, well, why did Jesus have to come and be in the flesh and die if we could do it on our own? And if there's teaching that, that you could do it on your own apart from Jesus, then John says, don't believe that. It's not from God. Or there's much around that has this confession that, oh, we are okay with Jesus. He was so good and loving, right? And yeah, we don't add up, but he was really loving, so it doesn't really even matter anyway. Is it to say again, why did Jesus have to come in the flesh and die if it doesn't matter how we live? And, and we could have said a million things about either one of those because the, the ways that they go out are pervasive and, and subtle and tricky because they're claiming something about Jesus and they give you a gospel, but it's just a little bit off. And the, if the person and work of Jesus isn't needed... John says, don't believe those things. When one claims to speak with authority or inspired words or to, to be from God, John says, put it to the test. Could, could you say to this thing, sir, we'd see Jesus, and, and does it pass that test? So whether that's the, the media you're watching or, you know, if you're flipping on the TV and you're going to that free channel that's, that's, that's 13 point however many, there's like six of them all in a row on your, your channel, right? Whether it's that or or some sort of blog post, or even private conversations, or preaching that comes in here every week, you need to ask, is the personal work of Jesus what's being lifted up here? Is Jesus and his coming in the flesh necessary for this teaching to hold? Or am I seeing Jesus from this? Is he being lifted up rightly? Is Jesus needed? Because if he's not, then it doesn't pass the test. And, Jesus, and John says, it's not from God. Why did Jesus come in the flesh? To rescue us. To rescue us from alienation from God, but to also to rescue us 
from false prophets and their teaching and their persuasion and their sway. And when Jesus comes and rescues us, he, de- he doesn't rescue us alone. We're not meant to do this alone as if he's going to say, here's the test. Take it over into the corner. Make sure no one copies on your work. Like He's writing to a community. He's saying to them, you guys, you guys need to test this. And so, yeah, we're, we're receiving teaching individually, but th- we have some questions about some things. We'd be like, hey, I'm hearing this. What do you think about that? Is, does this sound right to you? Uh, it says this about Jesus, or maybe Jesus is missing here. Am I seeing this rightly? We need to do this together. We're in a community. If we were to test in community, then we could throw out all the stuff that John has already been saying about living life together, which he has been clearly putting before us throughout 1 John. And so this test is a test to be done in community. But think about this. While this test is explicitly and specifically and primarily doctrinal, it's not exclusively so. What has John already said? He said all sorts of stuff about confessions. If we say it's only doctrinal, and if someone is teaching doctrinally accurate, then we can receive from them. He doesn't say that. That would deny previous chapters as well. You can't get away from John with explicitly confessing Jesus and then not living righteously, not loving brothers. You can't get away with saying you're from God and then not living a certain way in John. Look in John chapter 1, verse 6. I mean, I could have, how many verses could we have recited here? But chapter 1, verse 6, here's one of them. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and don't practice the truth. How about chapter 2, verse 4? Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Chapter 3, verse 10. Again, just to name a few, by this it's evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not from God. John is clear. Right? The way one lives affirms or denies one's confession. So if one claims to be from God and has this confession, Jesus has come in the flesh and, and would hold those things up in you and denies that with how he lives, John's saying that's not from God either. And so again, here in this context, in chapter 4, clearly this is, is explicitly, primarily doctrinal, but not exclusively doctrinal. The doctrinal, the ethical, the moral, all those go together. The practical and the doctrinal are, are meant to be together. And so here's what we do with the test. We start with ourselves and see, do we pass that test? And then we move out and we test all the spirits. But even with this test, with all the content that John has given us so far, False prophets still succeed at times. Perhaps that's John's audience. They, they had been swayed. Now, maybe they've remained because they ultimately like, oh, no, something's not right there by those who have already left, so I'm going to stay. But, but maybe they were pulled pretty heavily. Maybe they'd already been burned by the Antichrist, the many false prophets that have already gone out before John writes to them. And perhaps that's even part of the reason that John writes. Some of you have been pulled. We want you to remain. Surely they had doubts, questions, concerns, and John writes to them in the middle of that to bring them assurance. They, they probably have little confidence that they can even test things rightly because maybe they feel like I've already failed that test. And so John reminds them, verse 4, I love this, how tender, little children, dear children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Remember, John writes to those who remained, 
who shared fellowship with John, but that's a fellowship with the Father and with the Son, he says. He writes to them, those who have the Spirit, who abide in God and God in them, who are the children of God right then. And so in other words, these, these that he's writing to aren't self-made people. It's not that they've done this on their own. They haven't brought themselves up. They are from God. So in other words, John is saying, not only are you from God, but you don't have to look inwardly to yourself and all of your resources in order to stay protected and have assurance. You're from God. And so what's going to uphold you? What's going to help you overcome false prophets and false teaching? It's it's God. They're not self-made people, and so they're not to look to themselves to sustain. So John encourages You have the power to withstand false prophets, antichrists, the many of them that have gone out. You've actually have had victory by remaining in this fellowship. You've had victory over that temptation. How? Not because you were strong, not because you were wise, not because you had great discernment, not because you had some sort of special skill or you put on the right glasses that could tell you that's a weed, we're not to listen to that, and that's true, good seed, so we are to listen. He didn't give any of that. How have they overcome? What does John point to? He says, because of what's in you, you've overcome because you're from God and God is in you. Jesus promised a helper in John chapter 14. He didn't leave his disciples to fend for themselves. Here's what he tells them, John chapter 14. I will ask in the Father and the Father and he will send you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Or verse 26, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. God didn't leave his church, his disciples, his people to fend for themselves and figure out, like, let's put this to the test, which one's from God and which one's not from God. He doesn't do that. He gives them the helper, the spirit that will indwell them. And John says, greater is that one that indwells you, that is in you, than the one in the world. And it's by that work, by the work of the spirit that they've overcome and and none can destroy that work. By the Spirit. So in other words, John is pointing them to their dependence on the Spirit. He's pointing them back to what he's told them many times, to abide in God and God will abide in them. And church, we're no less dependent on the Holy Spirit today than they were. As if now, like in in our modern sensibilities, we've grown in our wisdom and understanding to where now we see things more clearly than they did. So that we don't need the helper. We need the helper. We need the Spirit and it's by the power of the Spirit in us that all of a sudden now, now we can overcome the, the spirit of false prophecy. Amen. Greater is the one that's in us than the one that's in the world. And we are dependent upon that Spirit, especially for security from false prophets. So we don't need to then be scared to look around every corner to see, like, is a false prophet going to be there and is it going to pull me away from the truth? Like, we don't have to fear that ultimately. We need to abide ultimately because the Spirit that we're abiding in is the one that's going to protect us and give us security from those things. There's no doubt in our age where it's just, you can be on different sides of the issue but still be an enemy of people on your side because you're not on that side enough. You know, like in the spirit of of this very splintered age, there's no doubt we're going to need more discernment, not less. We're going to need more wisdom, more strength, more help because we're in serious times. And church, we have it. Not in ourselves. Not in all the resources that have been provided for us. We have it in the spirit of God. 
he gives us all that we need. And it's by his power in us, power that is greater than any in the world, that we have security, that we have victory, even over false prophets and false prophecies. There's then no reason to fear all the many false prophets that have gone out into the world. We fear them because we can identify them. John has given us a test, and we have the spirit in us that's greater than them, and so we know we're not ultimately going to be swayed because of that spirit that's remaining in us. He's the one that keeps us. He's the one that points us to the truth. So no power can ultimately upend the Holy Spirit's work in those who are His. Our overcoming, if we're in Christ, is secured by the power of the Spirit. And here's what this doesn't do. For those who are His, who have this Spirit, who, who get to hear verse 4 and, and rally around it, like, yes, what an encouragement. We are from God. We've overcome because he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. We can rally around that, but what that doesn't do is that doesn't then lead us to arrogance. As if now we've got it all figured out and we're the ones that can tell everyone else now that we will show you all the false prophets because we have the one that's in us that's greater than the one in the world. It doesn't lead that way. The Spirit leads us down further in dependence upon God. It doesn't lead us to passivity. I love John's order here. He said in verse 1, to test. And then later he reminds them that they're going to pass the test by the Spirit. So it's not as if he, he's going around and saying, oh yeah, don't, don't actually test because the Spirit's in you. Test. And you can have confidence that you can test in a right way because the Spirit, we're to test every spirit, but we can do so in the strength that the Holy Spirit provides. We can get assurance from the Spirit who lives in us, who will give us the victory over false prophets, so we can overcome these things by that Spirit. But it doesn't say like, actually, you know, I said test earlier, but greater is the one in you, so don't really worry about that. No, the, the Spirit actually leads us to obey what the Scripture commands, always. He leads us into further dependence upon our Father, always. We're to test every spirit because we have the Holy Spirit in us. And so first, verse 4 is a verse of assurance and confidence, the kind that, that leads not to boasting in ourselves because now we've got it figured out. It's the kind that leads to boasting in God that says, but for him, I could go any direction. And maybe a few times I've gone in a few bad directions, but he kept me. He brought me back. We boast in that kind of God who would give us his spirit. You know what? The Holy Spirit loves that loves to point to the person and work of Jesus, loves to lead us in dependence upon God, loves to help us walk in obedience to the commands of God. So verse 4 is this assurance and confidence, and then John kind of shifts in verse 5 to address, from addressing his audience to a little bit more addressing, directly addressing the false prophets. He says of them, they are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. I mean, no doubt that they're going to have a following. I almost think that John's like, don't be surprised that, that some have been pulled, that not everybody remained, that maybe they even have a, the rival congregation. I mean, they probably didn't call it this. That would be a giveaway. But like the Antichrist church is being set up and they're, they're full every Sunday. And John says, yeah, if they have a message from the world, the world is going to readily receive them. Why wouldn't they? Nothing to oppose them? Like, we'll wrap our arms around that. This is not to come as a surprise. Again, good seed and bad seed are, are planted at the same times. There's wheat and there's weeds, and, and often they grow closely together. And so what's the difference? Well, John tells us, verse 6, 
He says, we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us, and whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. John switches how he writes here. Did you notice that? He, he goes, by this you know, verse 2, to verse 6, he says, by this we know. He, he switches to the first person. I, I think that John is, is incorporating this apostolic we here. He did this in chapter 1, verse 1, and following where he says, you know, what we have seen. What was he speaking of? What we have seen, what we have heard with our own eyes, right? What is he speaking of there? He's, I think he's speaking of the, the apostolic witness that they had actually been around Jesus. They'd witnessed, been eyewitnesses to his resurrection, to his life, his ministry. He was referencing it then in chapter 1, verse 1. I think he's doing something similar here. And his content here in verse 6 is similar to his content in chapter 1, verse 1 through 3. He says, those who received this message that we had, that we had seen and heard and passed on to you, those who received it, have fellowship with us. He doesn't first say they have fellowship with God, although he says that our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son. He says they have fellowship with us. In other words, there's a test right there. Are you in with the apostles who are affirming the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus? That's the real message, John says. Anyone that's gone outside of that doesn't have fellowship with the Father and with the Son because they don't have fellowship with us, because we have fellowship with the Father and with the Son. And similar thing is being said here. Here he says, those who listen to us, I, I think this we is a we of the apostles, a, a we maybe even of some of the, the teachers and leaders of John's congregation that he's writing to, the we here that are all on the same page regarding the personal work of Jesus that he's come in the flesh. He says, whoever listens to us is from God. Those who receive this apostolic teaching are from God. That's an indicator that they're from God. They're with us. So John doesn't just expose false prophets, he's also exposing those who would follow them and listen to them, those who would be in their audience. They're going to gain a large following, they're going to have a big church maybe, the world's going to receive them, and he says, but if they're not receiving apostolic teaching, if they're not receiving the, what we have given to them, then, then they're not from God either, and they're off, and the apostolic teaching is an indicator. I think Paul agrees with this, right? What does he say about the church? The church is built on, this is Ephesians chapter 2. The church, the household of God, is built on the foundations, the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Think about that. If there's another foundation, right, the apostles and prophets, they built on the foundation, the cornerstone, Christ. If there's another foundation, then they're not in the household of God. Because this foundation only goes in one direction. Christ is the cornerstone, the apostles and prophets, they were the they were laying the foundation so that from there we could become the household of God, members of the family of God. And he says, if there's another thing going on, you can know that that's not from God. There's only one foundation, to reject apostolic teaching or those who are in line with apostolic teaching, which I'll just, I'll explicitly say, we absolutely want to be. If, you're, if we're off of that, then he says, that's not from God. And so here he gives them another test. What's one's response to the teaching of the true church, the apostolic church? Are they in line with what the apostles have taught as given to us in the scripture? You remember that John writes to a, a congregation where many have already gone out from among them. And not all of them that left were teachers and false prophets. Some of them were just listening to those false teachers and false prophets. And John wants his people to be able to identify them too, so he, he knows that they won't get pulled by them by saying, hey, there's many that they're going to receive the message of the world. 
Even if there are many, even if you knew them and loved them, here's how you can know if they're from God or not. Because it would have been a pretty compelling thing to say, here's people I walked with who confess some of the same things as me, and then all of a sudden they're pulled over here, and they're not claiming something completely wild and out there. They're, they're pretty close to what we're saying. So are they right or are we right, John? John gives them this test. Do they receive our teaching? That'll tell you. The message and the reception of it help indicate what sort of spirit is at work. Is it a spirit of truth or a spirit of error? Is one from God or is one not from God? And so John prepares the church. He gives them timeless truth. Church discernment is needed. Testing is needed. It's not just for John's day, Corinth, Ephesus, Thessalonica, as if we don't have false prophets and many of them that have gone out in our day. I mean, just click on the internet. Turn on your TV, listen to the radio, open a book. It's everywhere. Discernment's needed. Testing are needed. <laughs> Not for the sake of running down false prophets and their crew. That's fun and easy for people, right? Let's blast people for being false prophets. That's out there too. John doesn't do that. God doesn't do that. He's so much more kind here to give us something that will last so that we know that, oh, not only is Alpheus a false teacher, but we can know who is a false teacher now because of the test that John has given us. So John calls for us to test. He builds our discernment for our protection so that God's children can be cared for so that they can find assurance, so that they can know they're on the right path, so that they can trust in God. He doesn't want those following false prophets to find assurance. If you fail the test, he doesn't want to give you assurance. He wants you to find a lack of assurance so that you might, in your despair, turn to something different, something better. But he wants those following Jesus, listening to his teaching, hearing that he's lifting up Christ and running to Christ themselves. He wants those to have assurance because at times the, the wheat and the weeds are, are going to grow together and it can be difficult to know the difference. But here's the difference. Only one kind of a seed ultimately has assurance with God because they have the Spirit in them. Which is which? John says, test it. Are you asking, which, which am I today? What, what am I before God? Test. And if you find assurance before God, you can know that you can only find right assurance before this holy God because you're His. That there actually is no assurance, ultimate assurance, apart from actual faith. So which is which? Test it. And those who are from God, John seems certain they will find assurance before God because greater is the one that's in them than the one that's in the world. If that's you, if you've passed the test and you're with us because you think we've passed the test, hopefully, then we have a meal to take together. This is a meal that, in a sense, is, is a, a renewal of the test each and every time we do it. It's saying, I'm all in with Christ. Jesus is everything to me. It's by his death and his resurrection that I have a standing, a sitting, a place at his table, a place in his family. It's by the personal work of Jesus. That's why we take this meal. And so if you're his, you're, you're reminded, you look back. You don't look to your work, you look to his work. Say, he bled and died that I might live and have fellowship with the Father and with the Son and with the other people who have fellowship with the Father and with the Son forever. So if you pass the test, this meal is for, for you, for us. Come and, and, and get a piece of the bread and be reminded that Jesus' body was broken for you, we can say. That his blood was poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. It's the personal work of Jesus that this meal puts in, for, in front of us. 
We come because of what he has done. If you, if you don't pass the test, we, we absolutely want to bring the right kind of despair to you. Not because we love despair, but because we want you to despair of all of the things that you think would save you before God. All of the things that you think would bring you assurance before God. Instead, we want you to despair of all those things and say there's only assurance found in Christ. So if you don't, fail, don't pass the test, if you failed, we'd say come to Christ. Even now, he invites you in because he's good, he's gracious, he's loving, he will receive you. If you don't know what that looks like, man, ask another believer, one that you think has passed the test, and say, how can I follow Jesus? How can I become a believer? And we'll prepare you to take this meal next time, but instead, don't take this meal. It's a family meal. So if you're family, ah, take this meal in the joy of what God has done for you. Let's bow in prayer as we prepare for this meal. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we, we are grateful, God, that you have given us everything that we need to know you and to follow you and to, to know those who, and identify those who seek to lead us astray. God, you tell us that your sheep know your voice that you're the good shepherd and the sheep that know that goodness, Lord, know when you're speaking. And God, you have given us your word. God, you've written down the things that you have said to us throughout history that we desperately need to know. And we have this test, we have this measuring stick, Father, to hold up to everything that is said in your name. So God, we just, we're grateful for that. And we just ask that you help us to live in the light of this truth, God. Help us to, to seek to know your voice better and better, to, to be a people of, of good doctrine. God, that when the, the bad doctrine comes our way, we can see that it conflicts, that it, that it denies those things, those, those hills, Father, that you've called us to die on. Help us not to be led astray by people who, who seek to create hills to die on that are not worthy, that are false. It's so prevalent, Lord. We see so much division in the world and in the church. And God, we just need that wisdom and that dis discernment that we, we, we've learned about and heard about today, Lord. And we know that you give it. But we also know that, that you ask us, that you command us to seek it and to acknowledge it and to go deeper into it. So God, help us, help us to test, help us to live lives of, of testing, not with critical spirits, but with the joy of knowing you and the awareness of knowing that you've given us again all that we need to know what is good and right. And you've given us, given us your spirit, Father, to live in us to dynamically interact with us and convict us and show us and enlighten us, Lord. Just teach us what it is to depend on that, to live lives of, of, of spiritual depth, of doctrinal depth. We're just grateful, Father, that you're such a good and loving God that you have given us all that we need.
in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.